Welcome to Harper Audio Presents. This is Erin Witz with Harper Audio. I recently spoke with Erica Johansson, author of The Queen of the Tearling, on sale July 8, 2014. Erica's exciting debut novel is the first in a trilogy that tells the story of Kelsey Raleigh, a wayward and unlikely queen who has grown up in the rural mountains of the Tearling and is called to take her place on the throne on her 19th birthday. But the Tearling has been in decline for many years and is in servitude to the mad whims of a neighboring kingdom and its red queen. And Kelsey must fight for her queenship in ways she never could have imagined. Plain and out of shape, Kelsey may not fit the bill as the standard storybook princess, but time and time again her plucky and courageous actions prove that perhaps she is just what the Tearling needs. Set in a future world mysteriously devoid of modern technologies, Erica sets the stage in this first book to build an expansive trilogy that has already been optioned for a film starring Emma Watson. Before our interview, let's listen to an excerpt from the start of the audiobook, narrated by Katie Kelburn. Kelsey sat cloaked and hooded in the fork of a tree some 30 feet from her front door. She was dressed in deep green from her hood down to her pine-colored boots, a sapphire dangled from a pure silver chain around her neck. This jewel had an annoying habit of popping out of Kelsey's shirt minutes after she had tucked it in, which seemed fitting, for today the sapphire was the source of her trouble. Nine men, ten horses. Best be done quickly. The speaker, a tall, lean man whose authoritative tone marked him as the leader, stepped forward and knocked three times on the front door. It opened immediately, as if Barty had been waiting there all along. Even from her vantage point, Kelsey could see that Barty's round face was lined, his eyes red and swollen. He'd sent Kelsey out into the woods that morning, unwilling to have her witness his grief. Kelsey had gone then and spent the morning roaming the forest, climbing over fallen trees and stopping every now and again to listen to the stillness of the woods, that perfect silence so at odds with the abundance of life it contained. She'd even snared a rabbit for something to do before letting it go. Barty and Carlin had no need for meat, and she took no pleasure in killing. Watching the rabbit bound off and vanish into the woods where she had spent so much of her childhood, Kelsey tried the word again, though it felt like dust in her mouth. Queen. An ominous word foretelling a grim future. Erica, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. Thank you. Um, so my first question, I, wanna, I really want to talk about Kelsey because she's somewhat of an unusual heroine. She's described as being quite plain, uh, not the most athletic person, not always super graceful, and she has a lot of the kind of shortcomings of any 19-year-old girl. She's quite naive. She's quite stubborn. Um, she's very headstrong. And I'm wondering, and I, I, for me this made her even more likable and relatable and interesting. And I'm kind of wondering how you got her to that point. Did that just happen naturally? Was that somewhat intentional? It was incredibly intentional. <laughs> I read, I don't read a ton of fantasy, but I read a lot. And every time, whether it's designed for young adults or not, I find that the heroine is almost always somewhat perfect. If not, you know, she's usually quite beautiful. She's usually always in the right place at the right time. You know, almost always very good with a bow or a sword or pick some, you know. And so I, I just, I wanted to write a heroine for the rest of us, 
like it's good to follow people like that. It's exciting to read about, you know, the perfect woman elf or whatever. But I just I felt like there's a big gap out there by and large for girls who would like to read about a girl like them. And so for girls and women. So anyway, yeah, I designed her just to <laughs> be more like the rest of us and not as a role model rather than an escapist read, which is, you know, <laughs> escapist reading has its place and I'm glad it's there, but when you need someone to look at and see and say I would like to be like that person, most of the heroines out there I find are not a realistic role model. I for love that. the rest of us. That's great. Yeah. Um Another another thing talking about inspiration for the book, I heard that Barack Obama was one of the inspirations, and you know it's kind of it's a fantasy dystopian novel with a female narrator. <laughs> it's like, hmm, that's interesting. So, uh, is that true? Uh, it is true, actually. Although not true to the extent that <laughs> there was an article when the deal was first made that said Obama fantasy trilogy coming out. So, <laughs> not true to that extent. What happened was um, I had a random dream, a dream I still don't to this day remember what it was about. Uh, back in 2007, a dream of ships going over the horizon, and literally, I believe it was three days later, I saw now President Obama on TV for the first time. And at that time, you know, I, I very much, I liked him a lot, and I was very hopeful, and I just, you know, so it kind of colored the book, and I wanted to write about a leader who would come along and rescue a doomed country. And so anyway, yes, he was very much an inspiration for the book. So he, he gave the hope aspect. Now there's a lot of very, very dark aspects to this as well. <laughs> Those came from me. Uh, <laughs> so oh, can't you elaborate? Are we treading into no, uncomfortable? No, it's, it's fine. Talking? I just, you know, I was in the middle of law school when I started the book, and I went at precisely the wrong time when the recession was about to start, though none of us knew that. And right about, uh, about the time where I hit somewhere around Chapter 5, um, we all realized that none of us were going to have jobs when we left law school. Almost none, you know, maybe the top 5% of the class were going to have jobs, and the rest of us were going to have to pay back our horrendous student loans any way we could. And so it just, as you're, as you're usually, I, I imagine there are authors out there who keep their book entirely separate from their own life, but I'm not one of them. And as my life darkened, the book darkened commensurately. So <laughs> it just kind of happened. It, it is by a process of osmosis. It just, you know, it was originally, I intended it as almost not a light fantasy read, but <laughs> not nearly as dark and heavy as it became later. So you were you writing this during law school? Yeah, or? for my second two years of law school. Okay, just as you know. Well, small you only, only got to write maybe one hour at night, mm -hmm. so life is much better now when it's my my job. Wow. But yeah, so it, it was really a matter of only squeezing in maybe an hour a day after all of my homework was done. So that's hugely impressive, <laughs> and you. not at all intimidating. <laughs> I don't think I'm an intimidating person. <laughs> Oh, wow. this is a pretty, pretty wonderful book. <laughs> Thank you. And I guess my next question would be the setting of the book. So at first I'm, I'm, I was feeling like, oh, it's a kind of a medieval fantasy world. And then all these things started happening that were like eerily familiar, didn't quite jive. And this idea of the crossing came up and you slowly start to realize this is actually the future of our world. <laughs> distant future. Can you just elaborate on, on the setting? I, I will elaborate to the extent I can, though a lot of it is being held for second and third books. Ah, so I'm going to tell ah. you, I'm probably not going to tell you as much as you'd like to know, and that's my editor's complaint as well. But I'd like to know this, and I say, do you need to know? And she says no, and I say, then you're not going to until I decide to tell you. So, <laughs> well, that's, I, when I read books, I like it when I, first of all, I hate it when the author explains everything to me. I like being forced to think and deduce when I read any kind of fiction. And so 
I wrote the book for, I didn't write the book to have broad appeal to everyone, I wrote it for readers like me, and that's why a lot of people have expressed frustration with the setting and the fact that, you know, clearly not even and close to everything is explained. Um, what I will say, though, is, first of all, those who like the book but are frustrated by it can take hope. In the second and third book, you will get the rest of the setting and all the questions will be answered. Um, but secondly, it is, it is a world in our future. Uh, I'm, not gonna, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you the geographic location because, again, that's for book two. Um, I'm sorry, deliberately frustrating the reader. Um, it, is, it is a world long in our future where humanity has abandoned technology and that's essentially why it looks very much like a medieval fantasy world, also because I love medieval fantasy and I just cheated. There, I said it. I cheated by setting it in the future. <laughs> but anyway, it looks, it looks by and large like a medieval fantasy world, and I meant it to operate that way, but I wanted to be able to draw on our old world, our old problems, lessons America should have learned you know, from, <laughs> from the issues we're going through now. I, I just wanted to be able to draw on history in a way that you usually can't in a fantasy book. So. Very cool. I I Does like that answer that. your question? <laughs> yeah, okay. absolutely, absolutely. Perhaps more than you'd like. Take heart. Book two and three, they're coming. Yes. <laughs> um, as, so it's a trilogy. Was it always a trilogy? No. About halfway through the first one, again, when it got a lot darker, you know, if it had been a light fantasy read, then probably it could have just sat on its own. But I, the problems of the tearling became so much more pronounced that <laughs> they were just, A, it would have been, kind of simple to solve them in one book. It would have looked overly simple. Whatever solution I came up with would not have felt organic, I don't think. But then also I fell in love with several characters who I wanted to, for instance, someday I plan to tell the full story of the Queen of Mortmain. But, you know, that'll be a whole separate book <laughs> far, far, you know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, eventually, I think this happens, possibly it's hubris and every author has it happen to them, but you just, you really fall in love with the world you made and you don't want to reduce it Again, that's why the first book, there's been some complaints that the first book doesn't really end, you know, it's not a, you know, it clearly is part of a larger story and it doesn't have a great conclusion like books should have. And it doesn't because I do view it as, <laughs> you know, I now just see this long-running story and I want to tell a piece of it at a time, but not so much in episodes. I watch a lot of, I don't know if this is pertinent to this interview, I watch a lot of Boardwalk Empire and it seems to me the great thing about these new, the new TV shows that come out lately in the last 10 years is that they're no longer episodic. They're just one huge story broken into pieces. And I love that. And so I'm trying to write that way as well now. And they always demand kind of a bang at the end of the book, so I try and come up with something, but it's never, you know, it's never an ending like it's supposed to be, Yeah. you know, in a singular book. So Part of the larger build. Yeah, it's just, it's one big story that I have to break up where I can <laughs> into books, you know. Well, that's what so. has me itching for the next one, <laughs> so, so well, well done. It <laughs> was not, that's where it was not intentional to mess with the reader in that way, but, you know, it seems to have, people are, some people do want their books to end, <laughs> and so I think that reader is not maybe going to be as happy with it, so. Can you give us any more tidbits from the future books where we're, Kelsey's going or uh, Kelsey is so nice and so good that we all know she can't stay that way so she will eventually have to become a slightly darker person there's that um, also I think the Red Queen it's <laughs> everyone keeps calling the Red Queen a villain and she is but I never intended her as an evil villain I intended her as someone who's maybe made bad choices and thus you know so as the books go on she becomes more sympathetic only because she's not truly bad so we will get some of that. And 
so then I do need a villain, and Kelsey and the Red Queen are going to have to work together against a different villain. So Ooh, that's basically that's where the story's go, and by and large, and I'm not going to say in what book any of this stuff happens, so, you know. <laughs> Sorry, reader. Well, I'm even more excited now. <laughs> um, and, okay, so I heard that you kind of thought a lot about Mists of Avalon when you were writing this. I know some people have compared it to Game of Thrones. It reminded me in, in really good ways of Tamora Pierce books I read when I was a kid. So I, I'm just kind of wondering what are some of your favorite books and genres, and do you have any books that you think did specifically influence this? Sure. Um, my favorite genre is actually horror. And always has been. And I've been trying for years to write a haunted house book, and I think I've just finally given up and accepted that I can't write horror well. And so I've given up on that life stream. But what I like to read is still primarily horror with side forays into fantasy, and then every once in a while I'll read a book that is neither of those things. But by and large, Stephen King is my favorite author and has been since I was about 10 years old. Um, nothing's changed. <laughs> um, Peter Straub. Uh, I read Lovecraft. I read Richard Math. I reread Richard Matheson constantly. Um, so mostly horror novelists. But if we're getting into fantasy that influenced me, Terry Brooks is a big influence. He wrote a book called The Elf Queen of Shannara. That's actually, I want to say, the sixth book in a seven <laughs> in, in his first seven books. Um, his entire his first two one's a trilogy. He wrote a trilogy first and then a four-part, my quadrilogy, I suppose you call it. And uh, those entire seven books influenced this heavily, but particularly The Elf Queen of Shannara, um, which is about a young girl who has to go and assume her throne. It's, you know, it's very different from mine, but the same sort of personal journey is operating, and so that was a strong influence. Frank Herbert's Dune, <laughs> again, a totally different type of book. It's sci-fi, but it, it is about essentially a kid who has to reclaim his, his house, which has fallen into the dust, you know, and that's a story that's always, you know, that's been told many times, and yet the broad outlines of it always interest me, so it, it, I'm sure it was a strong influence. All the chapter headings, people seem to like the chapter headings a lot, and that's, that is a technique that I took directly from Dune. It's the first place I ever saw it and noticed it and loved it, so to have uh, chapter headings that kind of turn your current story into history in some, <laughs> you know, make it a historical fact that's already a foregone conclusion. Um, let's see, what else? Uh, Watership Down is a heavy influence. I, it was originally mentioned in the book, but it was, I was told to remove it, so I did. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, Watership Down is one of those books that I think everyone everywhere should be forced to read. <laughs> you know, if I, if I was in charge of the world, everyone would have their mandatory copy of that and be forced to write a book report on it, but, you know, can't do that. Um, but anyway, the principles of Watership Down, which are the fight against tyranny, and, you know, a free society versus tyranny are operating heavily in this book, though it's an invisible influence. Um, and yeah, The Mists of Avalon, if, I mean, The Mists of Avalon was a bestseller, I'm sure everybody's heard of it and knows what it is, but anyway, it is, it is, to me, fascinating and almost unique in the fantasy world in that it's almost all talk. There's very little action in the book, you know, there, there is action from time to time, but Really, essentially, the book is a series of conversations, and all of the action takes place in a it, it is between characters and is political rather than you know a lot of magic and a lot of you know <laughs> a lot of fairy creatures. You know there are a couple, but anyway. So I wanted to write that book, which was fantasy that's not so much about the action, that is more about interpersonal dynamics. So whether I succeeded is up to the reader.
well, on this idea of, of magic in the book, there there is some magic here, but it does it doesn't feel like it's like the pre- predominant character or anything. Can you talk about your use of magic? You know, truthfully, I think originally it's grounded in laziness. To be quite honest, I'm a lazy writer in a lot of ways. I don't like to research, and I do, <laughs> and I'm not great at writing myself out of a corner. So originally, I put in magic, and I came up with the necklaces only because. It's a fantasy book, and you have to have magic. I mean, that's the one defining characteristic. I've never heard of, I don't think, a fantasy book that didn't have magic in it. So I knew it needed to be there, but then the other, the way the magic developed the way it did, because really, I don't like magic that is rule-based, that has, you know, in which, you know, there are rules on how you use the magic, and it's really important to adhere to those when you plot the book. I'm more interested in magic that starts messing with the person who's using it. That's, you know, Tolkien is the archetype of that, that it's just it's much more interesting to me the deleterious effects that magic have on the user. And so I decided to just, I partly put it in only because unconstructed magic really helps you get out of a tight plotting corner, I freely admit it. But also I just, I wanted it in there, but I wanted it to be more a feeling of the book and not so much a constant plot interruption. You know, I wanted I wanted most of the plot to be between the characters and not so much about you know, magic constantly coming in and doing things, you know, so there is one huge part of the book where magic is extremely important, but I didn't want the entire book to be focused on it or for it to have that fantasy feel where magical creatures are constantly popping out of the woodwork, you know. (laughs) I wanted it to be fantasy, but not so much that sort of fantasy. And then you talked about the way that each chapter opens with like a little clip from a historical text that really like gives this idea of this larger canonical work operating in the world. Did you did you start out with those or were those added on afterwards? I'm not sure if they helped you get into the world or were a result of it. Almost always added afterwards because first of all, I try to make them have some basic connection to the chapter. <laughs> you know, although Sometimes not, you know, sometimes I was just like, that sounds cool, let's put that on chapter 11 or whatever, you know, so sometimes, that, but almost always I came up with them afterward anyway, only because it's, it's easier to have some inspiration to try and come up with these little tidbits that are, you know, from an entirely fake world that, you know, you're just making up history as you go, um, easier to do afterward, but also I thought, when I read Dune, again, this, this technique I first saw and loved in Dune, and when I read it, it almost always set me up to read that little heading on the chapter, almost always set me up for what I was about to read somehow. It, it gave me tone, or it made me understand what I was supposed to focus on in the chapter. You know what I mean? It just It's kind of like a teeny little guidebook for what you, the reader, are supposed to take from the chapter, or when you see it, something, when you see a name come up in the chapter that was in the chapter heading. You pay more attention, you know. So really, it, I came up with them afterward and designed them to do that, to just say, you know, here, reader, just in case you can't do it yourself, here's what I'd like you to focus on. <laughs> nice. So. Well, I liked it a lot. <laughs> Thanks. Um, and then, I guess you might not be able to answer this at all, but there's a film coming out. Can you talk about it at all? Are you I don't know enough to talk about it at all, really. I am not involved. I... I've spoken to David Heyman on the phone once, and I really don't have any contact with the people producing the film unless they need me to answer a question. Mm -hmm. And I've had to answer a few questions. But by and large, I'm totally uninvolved in it, so I'm sorry I can't give the exciting Emma Watson information everybody (laughs) wants. So... No, but that's, uh, I'm very excited. I am excited for it. They're very, these people are very competent people, and I'm glad that, 
I'm glad they're making the movie. I'm extremely glad about that, but I'm just deliberately maybe I'm staying uninvolved only because I still have two more books to write. Yeah. And I'm sure however good the film is, the world of the film will be very different from the world of the book, and I would like to stay in the world of the book as long as I need to. Um, well, thank you. This has been so interesting. I'm thoroughly, thoroughly loving the book the second time through, which is high, high praise, I think. So, uh, thank you, Erin. Um, yeah, it's been great speaking with you. Early in the morning, before the sun even thought of breaking the horizon, the Queen of Mortmain woke from a nightmare. She lay frozen for a moment, her breath coming quickly, until she recognised the familiar scarlet of her own apartments. The castle beneath her was dead silent, for all of them knew that the Queen never rose before the sun. Until now, the girl the girl. She was the hidden child, Alyssa's child. She could be no one else. In the Queen's dreams, she was sturdy and dark-haired, with a strong, determined face and her mother's green, raleigh eyes. But unlike Alyssa, she was a plain thing, and somehow that seemed the worst detail of all, the one that conveyed the most reality. The rest of the dream was a blur of pursuit, thoughts of nothing but escape, while the Queen attempted to outrun the man in grey and what appeared to be a conflagration behind him. But when she woke, it was the girl's face that remained, round and unremarkable, just as her own had once been. You've been listening to Harper Audio Presents, available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher Radio. Today we spoke with Erica Johansson, author of The Queen of the Tearling, on sale July 8, 2014, and listen to clips from the audiobook narrated by Katie Kelgren. Thank you for listening, and please join us again for more conversations with some of our favorite authors.